you know, it shouldn't be odd that we would gather together as the church and the Holy Spirit would break out. It shouldn't be odd. And it, it doesn't always have to be some, you know, jumping up and down kind of jamboree jam session for the Lord. I mean, it, it can be all sorts of things. You know, the Lord, he is no, uh, he, there's no boundaries to how he wants to minister. Sometimes it's just a few words in, a, in, a, in some body prayer. Sometimes it's healing. Sometimes it's just a, a sense of his presence. Sometimes it's just the, the richness of the word. Sometimes it's all of it, you know, and God's creative, Far be it from us to come to, ha- to have predictable church services. I'm trying to, trying to figure out why that became such a good thing. If we could just make it predictable, you know, get in by this time, get out at that time. Three fast, three slow. Don't say too much, preacher. Get me out on time. Got to beat the Baptist to the buffet. You know what I'm saying? It, it, I'm not sure why that became normal for our gatherings. You've got God in you. I've got God in me. We've all got God in us. There should be a whole lot of God going on when we gather. And them that are born of the Spirit, the Bible says we're like the wind. You know, you don't know where the wind's coming from. You don't know where it's going. But the Holy Spirit, you know, He does. And it doesn't mean that you're just supposed to cast off all restraint and not have any kind of, you know, boundaries in your life. But there is those times when the Holy Spirit, He, hap- he happily changes directions for us because he's, he's doing it to profit with all. The Bible says He manifests the gifts of the Spirit for the profit of all. And He does it in the moment to, to edify the body. And we should be used to this kind of thing, you know. It should be how we normally flow. Amen. Good. Okay. Well, I think I'll preach now. How about that? Like I said, we're on part two of uh, the series that we started last week called A Radical Return, and we're talking about the kingdom of God, and I thought Jeff did an awesome job last week of just laying it out for us, that from Genesis to Revelation, the Lord is clearly a king, and he has a kingdom, like a legitimate real kingdom, and Psalm 10 verse 16 says that the Lord is king forever and ever. And Psalm 145, 13 says, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. And so his kingdom isn't just some sort of ethereal, cloudy, kind of wispy thing. His kingdom is actually, actually a literal kingdom. He's literally the king and he wants his kingdom to manifest fully on the earth, which is why Jesus in the middle of the Lord's Prayer, in Matthew 6, 10, he had us pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so that wasn't just a slogan. You know, that wasn't just for the, you know, the nice little scene with the, your kingdom come, your will be done, you put it on the bathroom wall, and just, you kind of just, you know, has a little slogan on the wall. It, no, that was literal. Jesus was praying and teaching the disciples Pray for the kingdom of God to be fully manifest on earth as it is fully manifest in heaven. And that means all the operations of the kingdom being being fully in place in the earth. And so it's right at the center of the Lord's prayer. And so throughout the Old Testament, what we find is this prophetic uh, thread that constantly tells us that the kingdom of God is coming in fullness and that God's chosen a king who will rule and reign. 
And the language gets really super clear uh, when the Lord is speaking to David. And so in, in 2 Samuel 7, 16, he says this to David, and, he, and he, it really clarifies a point or two for us, because he says, your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. And so we kind of get this peace that there is a natural throne, the throne of David, that's going to be woven together with the eternal of God. It's a forever throne. And so you get this, this clear picture that the throne of David on the earth is where the king of kings is going to rule from. That's a good place to say amen. I'm just... We'll cue the amens. We're going to get an amen sign that they just flash it at the, at the appropriate time, and y'all will know to say amen at this point. <clears throat> so the throne of David, it's prophesied to David that on your throne forever there will be a king. So you get the eternality of God, and you get this, this tactile reality that it's on earth forever. And so this... This is a mind blower because what happens to us is we're so tuned into what I call, you know, Western Christianity or churchianity. We're so tuned into what does it look like, you know, just to sort of come to church, get my word for today and go home and hopefully be, you know, a good person for the next seven days until I come dragging back to church, that we don't realize that there is a kingdom that's unfolding and that has been the plan of the Lord from everlasting into everlasting, that his plan is to release his kingdom in fullness on the earth. And, and his kingdom is a legitimate, real kingdom. It's not just sort of this ethereal thought of a kingdom. It's actually a kingdom with a king. Hallelujah. That king's name is Jesus. Go ahead and flash the amen sign. Psalm chapter 2, he says... Y'all are going to get me giggling. <laughs> Psalm 2, he says, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And it says, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh because the kings of the earth, they try to cast off the, the, the leadership of the Lord. And the Lord goes, no, you guys all wanted to vote on who the king is. But he says, kings of the earth, I've already voted. I've already set my king. And that's Jesus. Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the one who will sit on the throne of David. I, I love Isaiah 9 because we always pull it out at Christmas, you know. Um, it's the, you know, his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, uh, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then it says right there, and this is a phrase that, what, this is a phrase that we usually just pass over. It says, on the throne of David. <laughs> And of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. And the increase of peace, there shall be no end. Although on the throne of David is a little phrase that we just go, well, I don't know what that David thing is, but he shall reign forever. And, you know, and, and we don't really know what the Bible's actually even telling us. But the Bible is telling us is that God's chosen king is a man who will sit on a real throne, the throne of David that was prophesied to David by Samuel. He'll sit on that throne and he will reign forever and ever. He will reign forever and ever. That's Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus comes and he says, repent for the kingdom is at hand, he's going, I'm the guy. That's huge. And so we see it in the book of Acts. Here's what happens. The day of Pentecost comes and, and, and you know, the, the, 
the power of God's poured out, and there, there's a sound from heaven, and, and like a mighty rushing wind, and all the people gather. I always, you know, we always think that the people gathered because everybody was speaking in tongues on the day of Pentecost, but they didn't gather because of the tongues. They gathered because the sound of the wind, which always made me wonder who was blowing the wind. Some big angel in there, you know, but it's so loud. The whole city comes. And, and, and so then here's Peter. He's going to preach the gospel. This is, this is day one, right? Like they got the Holy Spirit. It's day one. Church planning 101, power. We're going to now proclaim the gospel. And he's speaking about David in this address in Acts chapter 2. And he says of David, he says, therefore, being a prophet, David, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. And he goes, this Jesus whom you crucified, he's the guy. But I want you to think about this for a moment. This is the first public gospel proclamation in the New Testament, after the Holy Spirit's coming, after the church has been birthed, right? This is where the church is getting birthed. This is the first public gospel proclamation. And what is he talking about? The throne of David and Messiah, Jesus Christ, the one who's coming to rule and reign. Notice there's nowhere in that passage where he says, if you'll just ask Jesus in your heart right now and pray this simple prayer, you get to go to heaven. He says, heaven is coming here. And this is the guy. The guy is Jesus, the one that you've crucified. And so when I, when I begin to see this as in the gospel proclamation, it begins to like, I, I mean, it really begins to just convict me because I think, what have we been preaching? We pass over thoughts like the throne of David, but in God's mind, that's like central to the whole story. There's an unfolding story, a story of the kingdom, and Jesus Christ is going to going to return. And so that's what Peter actually goes on in the next chapter. And he says in Acts 3, in regard to Jesus, he goes, he's the one that God's raised up in Acts 2, that will sit on the throne of David. And then Acts 3, he says this, now repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of the restoration of all things. So he says, this is the deal. This Jesus whom you crucified, God has resurrected. Now he's going to be the one that's going to sit on the throne of David and heaven must receive him until the time of restoration of all things. And what is that time? The, the, the restoration of all things. What is that? It, it's what the disciples were asking about in Acts chapter one, verse eight. They said, they said, so uh, is this the time when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is this the time of restoration? Because it's not for you to know the seasons and the times the Father's put in his own, his own calendar, really, his own agenda. He goes, but you shall receive power and the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses. And the point is this, that the endowment of the Holy Spirit's power on a believing people to manifest the kingdom in this age is to get the whole world to see that there is a coming king. Amen. That's the point. We do these time, you know, we do these meetings and we have healings and woo, power and glory and charismatic and yay. And we don't even get it that it's about 
attesting to the, the deity and the kingship of Jesus Christ. Hebrews says that we have the powers of the age to come that we're manifesting now. And that's what the church's job is to do, is to manifest the powers of the age to come right now. Why? Because it tells us about the age to come when the Lord Jesus will return, when he will rule and reign, when the law will go forth from Zion and he'll teach us his ways. He's coming here, beloved. And our our faith and, and our way of life has to be in tune with this truth that Jesus is the one that, that God has chosen to sit on the throne of David, which means he's coming to rule and reign. The way we live day in and day out has to make sense in light of that, or we're completely outside of the, the thrust of the kingdom. Am I making sense? And so what I'm, what I'm concerned a lot about is that what we do in the church in the West is we... Uh, preach to people about what will make them happy right now and, and help them to, to live their best life today and tomorrow. And we don't prepare them for the truth of the coming kingdom. In fact, we invite them to join our church, but we almost never invite them to join the kingdom. Now just think this through for a moment. Jesus is a king now, we also know that there's the, the kingdom of darkness, right? In, in 1 John 5, 19, it says the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one, right? And, and when Jesus shows up and begins to rebuke the Pharisees, he says, you guys are all of your father, the devil, right? And, and, and the reason why is because anybody that's in sin is in the kingdom of darkness, isn't that right? And so you have to, when you come to Jesus, you have to turn away from the kingdom of darkness and turn to the kingdom of light. You have to change kingdoms. You have to trade in your old citizenship to get a new citizenship. Isn't that right? And what we try to do is this. We try to tell people, just pray a simple prayer, ask Jesus into your heart, and we're offering them Jesus like he's something inside of a salt shaker that you can kind of, you know, just sort of sprinkle on, you know, the main meal of your life a little bit, and he's going to make your life better. And we reduce Jesus to like some Tony Robbins, you know, like success speaker who just makes you happier. But Jesus is God, he's the king of kings, and when he comes, when his kingdom comes, every other kingdom has to go. Am I making sense? And so when you get saved, just hear me, when you get saved, you can't bring all the old kingdom in, sprinkle a little Jesus on, and now you're a Christian. That's foolishness. You have to leave the old kingdom and change kingdoms and come under the kingship of Jesus Christ. Is this making sense? And so what I fear is this, that we've asked people to add a little Jesus onto their life. They've never left the old kingdom. And they do all sorts of stuff in the name of Jesus that's not Jesus at all. You can no more paint Jesus' name on something and then just do it your own way and, and call it Jesus. Like, that, that doesn't make it Jesus just because we put his name on it. Does that make sense? Like, I mean, you could have a building and you could have people meet in the building. And you could put Jesus' name on the front. But if you're not teaching the values of Jesus' kingdom, is it even Jesus? And this is where I'm concerned sometimes. 
Because I wonder if we've completely misunderstood the Bible teaching on the kingdom, the Bible teaching on Jesus Christ as the king, the requirement of repentance to enter the kingdom of God, turning away from the old and turning into the new. I wonder if we've completely missed that and and kind of just made a, a kingdom of our own. Oh, I'm meddling now. The oh me light should show up right now. Oh me. That's for the hard lines. You know, about, uh, I'd say 12 years ago, the Lord really started dealing with me about the issue of the kingdom. What is the kingdom? And, And I started really going into the scripture and studying and realizing that so many of the things that I was holding dear to my life, like, as I thought, that I thought were just like central to Christianity, I realized that they were just stuff that we made up. They were, they were like rituals that we made up. Yeah. I don't want to, like, don't, don't go running out of the room, but can anybody tell me the Bible verse that says you have to go to church on Sunday morning? Like, I'm glad you're here, and we meet on Sunday morning, and I want us to be here. But there's not a Bible verse that says that. In fact, if I told you where we got it, which I will tell you, but if I told you where, you got, where we got that, you'll be like, what? Yeah, that is a Roman thing where they mixed, they mixed the worship of the sun god with the worship of Jesus and Roman Catholicism, and we put it on Sunday. And they used the synagogue system, and they put it together with this Roman worship of the sun god, and then we got Sunday. Got to come to church on Sunday. I remember when, I, <laughs> some of y'all are like, oh my God. Did he just, yeah, that's right. We made that up. That's not in the Bible. We're not supposed to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Like that's in the Bible. And, and we're supposed to stay in fellowship and we're supposed to give ourselves a doctrine and teaching and all these things. But there's nothing about Sunday morning that makes it like the God moment. But I remember when these things hit me, I was like, whoa, we're doing a whole lot of stuff that we're calling Jesus that's not even Jesus. I, uh, we were at dinner the other night. My family and I were eating dinner. And um, somebody, somebody started eating before we prayed. And I don't know, probably it was me. But one of us, so one of us starts eating before we prayed. And the other one, like one of the kids is like, you're going to hell. We didn't pray. You know, like they're just judging them hard, right? And, and, I, and so there's this back and forth. And, and I go, wait, wait, guys, guys. I go, you know, there's not a verse in the Bible that actually says you have to pray over your meal. They're like, What? I go, well, you know, Jesus blessed the food. He multiplied the food. You give thanks in all things. I mean, there are verses that kind of support the practice, but there's not a verse that says you have to pray over your meal before you eat it. And my son looks at me, he goes, I feel so used. How how could you train me that? And, And it's because we make up all this stuff that's not even Bible, and we don't even realize that we're doing it. For instance, I used the phrase a moment ago, you go to church on Sunday morning. But that's a completely improper thought. In fact, it's not even a real thought because the church isn't a building. The church is the people. Hello. We are the church of the firstborn from the dead, the church of Jesus Christ. In fact, the church of the firstborn is those that are on the earth that are in Jesus and those that are in heaven, which is what the Bible teaches us, Hebrews chapter 12. We are the church. I'm just, all the, all the sacred cows are like dead, decapitated right now. 
in the lobby. But here's the point. My point is this, that Jesus is a real king. He's really bringing his kingdom. And so when Jesus showed up and began teaching, he wasn't teaching churchianity. He was teaching the values of the kingdom. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about the culture and the values of the kingdom of God. And so um, he shows up on the scene and, and, and he does signs and wonders and miracles. And he's gathering a huge crowd and, and people are following him all over Judea. They're following because they've heard this new prophet that can, that can you know, heal the sick and, and, and open blind eyes and open deaf ears. But the entire time, all he's teaching them is repent for the kingdom of, of God is at hand. He's, that's all he's teaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And, and so it's not until Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus actually begins to teach his first real message. And so that's known in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, that's known as the Sermon on the Mount, okay? And it's because he's on a little mountainside outside of Capernaum, and there's thousands of people gathered, and it's his first public address. And so when Jesus was saying, repent for the kingdom is at hand, he was telling them, and in the Jewish mind, they would have got it. They would have got what he was saying. We wouldn't get it because we don't think that way, but they were looking for the son of David. They were looking for the one that would sit on David's throne. They were looking for Messiah, which was the son of David, the king that would rule forever on David's throne. And so when Jesus shows up and says, repent, change the way you think, because the kingdom of God is at hand, he was saying, it's right here with you now. I'm the guy. And so he's doing all these signs and wonders and miracles. The crowds are growing. Everybody's gathered. And so then here's what happens. He goes outside of Capernaum, and he begins to teach them. And when he's teaching them the Sermon on the Mount, he's not just teaching haphazardly. He's not just, well, it's time to teach a message, I guess. He's going to now unpack the value system of the kingdom of God. He's the king. He's the son of David. When he shows up in his first public address, what he does is he gives the values of the kingdom of God. And that's the Sermon on the Mount. And so it has these eight points that we've called the Beatitudes, which I think is pretty insufficient for what they really are, because those eight points that he starts it with, they're the core values of the kingdom of God. He's putting in place the pilings of what everything is built on. And so the, the Beatitudes or the core values are what everything in the kingdom is supposed to be built on. It's actually prescribing to us the way that we're to live in Christ. And it's not just a value system that we're supposed to embrace and sort of understand. It's a value system that we're supposed to live. But even more than that, it's not just a value system, sort of the, the eight good ideas. There's the things that Jesus values. And so when we read them, we realize, oh, this is what you're like, and this is what you want me to live like. All right, so core values of the kingdom, the Beatitudes. Let's look at it. I want to read these eight core values, and then I'll come back, I'll circle back around, and we'll go through each one of them. And here's the thing that is just, man, it's just what it is. When you begin to read what Jesus values and what the value system is of the kingdom, it will shock you because what you'll find is that what we value in American Christianity doesn't look anything like what Jesus values. And it just brings you to, you just got to come face to face with this issue. If, if our value system isn't his value system, what value system are we living by? 
because we're living by somebody's value system, which then brings that 1 John 5, 19 back to mind. The whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. So I go, oh man, have we just painted Jesus' name on stuff, kept embracing the value system of the world, called it Jesus, but we're not living by his values at all? <laughs> Come and preach it, sister. <laughs> She's like, you know it. So if that's the case, we, ha- we have to repent because the kingdom of God's at hand. We've got to change how we're thinking so we can change how we're acting, okay? All right, so let's read this. Matthew 5, 3. Let's go ahead and just read. Um, we'll read it through uh, like verse 13. So Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Wow. So the first thing that I realize when I read through the core values, when I read through these blessed are statements, is I realize that Jesus' definition of what's blessed and my definition of what's blessed are completely different, right? I'm blessed if I get a raise, I get a new job, a new car, right? I'm blessed if somebody gives me a Pentecostal handshake with $100 in it. Hallelujah. That's blessed. Jesus says you're blessed if you're persecuted. And I go, you know, Jesus, um, me and him are on a first name basis. You know, Jesus, um, I go, I, I don't feel so blessed when I'm persecuted. And he says, it's because you don't know me. You don't know my values. See, when Jesus showed up and he preached the Sermon on the Mount, six different times he said to the people, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. He had to reinterpret everything that they'd understood in the law. He had to reinterpret it because they had been brainwashed into pharisaical legalism. And so it's almost like us today. We hear statements like, blessed are those who mourn, and nobody's getting in that line. If we said, we're going to have a ministry line, we're going to release the blessing of mourning. Like, like nobody's doing that. But Jesus goes, no, that is blessed. And so we have been, just like they were kind of deceived into pharisaical legalism, we have been sort of deceived into churchianity. And we don't know what the kingdom is about. So let's just walk through these. 
So poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? I will tell you, it has nothing to do with money. It has everything to do with a heart that says, I need God and nothing else will do. In fact, I am completely destitute. I am poverty stricken. I have no goodness about myself in any way. I am completely lost without Jesus. I am poor in spirit. Without him, I can do nothing. I have nothing. And I am nothing unless Jesus Christ saves me. I'm lost forever. I'm destitute. That's what poor in spirit is. And what I'm concerned with is this, is that we will invite people to come to Jesus. They show up, they think they're rich in spirit. And they think Jesus is just going to help them like he's the bonus plan. Instead of showing up bankrupt, they show up full. And, and the, you know, the contrast is what Jesus said to the church of Laodicea. He said, because you say that you are rich and you have need of nothing, but you don't realize that you're poor, miserable, naked, and blind. He goes, I'll spew you out of my mouth. And this point here, this being the first value that he brings for the kingdom, he's trying to get us to see something, that entrance to the kingdom of God comes by no other means. You can't come into the kingdom with all your stuff and sort of add Jesus. You have to come to the kingdom and you say, Jesus, I need you. I'm bankrupt without you. I'm lost without you. I am poverty stricken. Save me. You've got to come that way. So he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom. This is the doorway to the kingdom. There's no other way in. And here's the point. You don't graduate from it. You don't like come in poor, get saved, and now you're like, I'm rich, bless God. I'm rich in the spirit. Glory to God, I'm full. No, every single day of your life, you've got to be like, Lord, I need you. I need you. I'm nothing without you. And we've gotten weird with it at times where we think you get saved and, you know, you don't really even need Jesus anymore. You can just quote the Bible and be a Christian or something. No, every single day of our life, we, we have to have that mentality of, Lord, without you today, I am nothing. I am lost. I'm poor without you, Lord. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Next, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Well, what does that even mean? Blessed are those who mourn. I mean, let's just think about how church is nowadays. It's like, dude, come to church and you want me to to mourn? What are you even talking about? Let's be joyful. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Come on. I mean, it's it's like this concept doesn't even resonate with, with Western Christianity. And what's he talking about? So he clarifies it for us in Matthew chapter 9, 15. He said, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn while the bridegroom is with them? He says, no, but I tell you, the days are coming when the bridegroom will be taken away and then they will fast. And so he takes this idea of spiritual mourning and fasting and prayer and he puts them together. And what it is, is this, that in your heart, on the inside, you know that you, you have a, a relationship with Jesus, that you know Jesus, but, but there's this, 
this distance still between you and him because he's not physically with you. And so when he's taken away, your heart aches. And even though you can hear him, you've never heard his voice. And though he releases revelation to you, you've actually never seen him with your own eyes. And though you can feel his presence, you've never touched him. And so on the inside, you say, Lord, things are not okay until you come. Things aren't okay till you're here. I, I, I want to be with you. I'm mourning for you. But you know what we tend to do? We tend to start to feel that ache of spiritual longing and mourning on the inside, and we fill it full of everything we can to try to anesthetize our soul so that ache of longing doesn't actually become unmanageable. But the Lord says, no, 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 I don't want you to fill your soul with all these earthly pleasures so that you get, you know, so like, you know, deluded with other things. I want you to allow the ache to go down deep. And in this life, I want you to, to mourn and long for me. Oh, beloved, Jesus Christ is longing for his bride. And I'll tell you what, he's coming back for a bride that will be longing for him. He's not coming back to a disinterested bride. He's not coming back to, you know, some girl that's got 17 other boyfriends. It's just not what he's doing. He goes, blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. So you get to this place where you don't really want anything. You just want him. And on the inside, you just know that there's dissonance until he's there. But he says, oh, longing and mourning for him. Blessed are those who mourn, because there's a day coming. There's a day coming when you're going to be comforted, when you're going to see him face to face. And oh, for that day when your eyes gaze on the eyes of fire, and every dream and every desire of your heart is fulfilled. Oh, for that day when you look into that face that shines like the sun in its strength. Oh, for that day when pleasure itself is standing before you in the person of Jesus Christ. And for eternity, you will come to greater and greater measures of revelation of love and pleasure in him. Hallelujah. You'll be comforted. So for a moment, mourning lasts for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Amen. Then blessed are the meek. Verse Five, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, let me just tell you something. When he said they shall inherit the earth, he, he, he wasn't like, you know, making some kind of figurative statement. He was saying, those that are meek in this age will rule and reign with me in the next. Because my leadership team will be the humble folk. Because Jesus Christ is the most humble. Do you understand he's coming back to rule and reign, right? Whoa, whoa, whoa. We get that, right? He's coming back to rule and reign. Jesus Christ is coming. We get this point? Like he's really coming. That's not a cartoon or something. Like it's real. It's not just like a left behind movie. Like it's real. He's really coming to the planet. Jesus is. He's going to teach us his ways. The Bible says he's going to overthrow the thrones of every kingdom. His kingdom is going to come in fullness. Jesus Christ, the law will go forth from Zion. He will teach us his ways. And every structure of every society, of every nation will be run by the leadership of Jesus Christ. And the meek will inherit the earth. They will be his leadership team. So when he says, blessed are the meek, I just think about 
how we tend to take the world system of what is successful and put it right inside of the church. And we don't tend to value meekness, we tend to value success and platform and influence. And we tend to, to, to value people who've got a lot of money or who've got a lot of you know, um, social media sphere or something. They got 10,000 followers. Oh, they got 50,000 followers. Well, I'll tell you in a minute, Jesus Christ will have all of the followers and your Twitter account won't matter. But we're after something that many times is in opposition to the kingdom. We're after ascending, sort of moving up the ladder. And this happens in ministry all the time because what people tend to do is this. They think, well, if I'll just serve over here, I'll get noticed and then I'll get promoted. But that's not going for meekness. Meekness is trying to serve without anybody noticing. It's not letting your left hand know what your right hand's doing. Uh, meekness is how low can you go? Think about Jesus. Jesus Christ, he's God. All the worlds were created through him. He is the word through which all the worlds were created through Jesus. And when he comes into his creation, he comes as a baby born in a barn, in a trough, in a feeding trough where animals eat. He's God and he's in a manger. We, I mean, we, we kind of, of all the songs about away in a manger, we think a manger is a nice spot. No, it's where animals eat their food. You wouldn't put your baby in there. But Jesus came in there. And he, so he starts low, and he goes lower and lower and lower and lower till he even allows his own creation to put him to death. He who is life allows the creation to put him to death. And the night before, the night before they bludgeon him and tear him apart, he washes his, the feet of his disciples. He washes his disciples' feet. He's on, he's on his knees cleaning the gook off of their feet. This is God. He just goes lower and lower and lower and lower. Why? Because he loves meekness. We don't love it. He loves it. He, he loves becoming the servant to make others great. He loves not getting the accolades. He loves giving with no one noticing. He loves serving and no one says thank you. He loves taking that humble place because he is meek. I'm so challenged with this. You, you think I'm preaching at you. I'm preaching at me. I'm sitting right there just hearing all this. I'm getting it myself. But, but think about this. We get so offended when we serve and people don't thank us properly. Who are we serving for? Do your works unto God, not unto men. Meekness means this faithfully cultivating a servant's heart in order to attain the benefit of others above ourselves in regard to honor, privilege, and position. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. I've only given us three of them. You tell me, does this sound like Western Christianity? <laughs> it's crazy. 
Because his kingdom is it's perpendicular to our kingdom. This means we have to repent because the kingdom is coming to change our minds and to change the way we think. All right, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. We usually pull this one out at the revival meeting when we want everybody to be hungry for God. <clears throat> but that's not what this one's about. This one is about having the righteousness of God so rooted inside of you that you're filled with righteousness and that all the gray areas of compromise and cutting the corners are out of your life. This is about getting to the place where you say, I don't want any compromise in me at all. I'm hungering to be like you above everything else. It's not about just the, you know, the having the big blow-up revival meeting. It's about longing for the very nature of God to possess you. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be filled. Filled with what? With righteousness. See, he wants his people to long for his nature so that we would be conformed to his very image. This is a value of the kingdom. This isn't something that you, you graduate from. The next one, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. I, I love mercy. I, I love when I receive mercy, especially from my wife. <laughs> Mercy's awesome. But let me just ask you, do you love giving mercy? We all love getting mercy. Be merciful. Mercy. Do you love giving mercy? Because mercy is kindness and forgiveness to the one who doesn't even deserve it. Wait, did you hear that last part? They don't deserve it. In other words, somebody has to do you wrong and actually not deserve it, and then you can actually begin to do mercy. <laughs> Doing mercy requires you get, getting done wrong. It's such a, I go, Jesus, I don't really want to get done wrong. He goes, I love being kind to people that do me wrong. He goes, I, that's what I'm made of. I go, Jesus, I, I'm not like that at all. I like getting them back. When they do me wrong, I want to get them back. He goes, yeah, that's why your ways are not my ways. And your thoughts are not my thoughts. He goes, as far as the heaven is above the earth, so far are my ways from your ways and my thoughts from your thoughts. We're not the same. Do you love mercy? Do you love being merciful? See, beloved, it's real quiet in here. And the reason why is because we realize what value, if we're not living these values, what values are we living? And then we go, oh God. Sometimes I just wonder, I think I've said it recently, but I just wonder what it would be like to sit down with Jesus for coffee. He sits down with you, he looks at you, he goes, man, what do you want to talk about? And you go, man, Jesus, I don't know, whatever you want to talk about. He goes, let's talk about how blessed it is to be persecuted. I guess, man, when they stretched out my back and they put that cat of nine tails across me, oh, there was such a blessing in that. And you're like, I don't, What? You want to talk about the blessing of being persecuted? I don't have any, I don't, I stay away from persecution. It, I just wonder if we sat down and had coffee with him and he said, hey, let's talk about how fun it is to be merciful to people. 
if we would even have anything to talk about. Because his values, and it's not just, it's just, it's not just how he wants us to live, it's what he values, how he lives. They're so different than ours. Only a few more left. We'll get, we'll get you out here shortly, just hang in. Blessed are the pure in heart. We always pull this one out at the purity meeting when we want to get people off of pornography. That's not what this is about. This is about your motives. What's, what's in there motivating you? What's causing you to tick? What are the ambitions that are driving you? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You see, so often we operate politically. We do things to actually win favor from others and the motives of our heart are actually for our own benefit, but he calls us to love without hypocrisy. And so having a pure heart is having a heart that's only in it for the glory of God and for not for yourselves. Wow, amen. And so when our motives are being, you know, they're being investigated by the Lord, the question is, are our motives like his? Are they pure? Is love motivating us? He says, blessed are the pure in heart. They shall see God. The next one, blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called the sons of God. Let me just give this to you really quick. Most of us are peacekeepers, not peacemakers. What does that mean? That means when something is difficult, we would prefer to ignore it and act like it's not happening to keep the peace. A peacemaker actually goes into the difficult situation like the son of God and brings the kingdom into that place to actually bring peace. The biggest example is Jesus Christ coming into the earth and we have this massive issue called sin that's destroying people. Jesus Christ comes into the issue of sin, lays himself down and dies to pay for sin to bring peace. A peacemaker goes into the difficult moment, brings the kingdom of God, and actually manifests peace in that place. He goes, blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called the sons of God. Then finally, some of y'all are like, whew, get me out of here. Finally, verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here's the deal. The first seven values, when they are lived in the life of a believer, the eighth one comes naturally. You won't have to go looking for it. I remember when I was in college and we wanted to share the gospel on campus, we were like trying to win this blessing by like being obnoxious. So there is no like blessed are the obnoxious, you know? And sometimes people, they, they want to come across like so brash and arrogant and, and, and they think, well, now I'm being persecuted for righteousness sake. No, you're being persecuted because you're acting like a jerk. But when you live in opposition to the flow of the spirit of this age, inevitably they will look you in the eye and go, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you going the same direction that we're going? Why are you acting that way? I mean, why do you care about what's righteous? I mean, everything's relative. You don't have to go so hard for righteousness. It's all relative now. And so the persecution will come when you stand for Jesus. And Jesus says it this way. He goes, you are so blessed when you're persecuted. He goes, yours is the kingdom. In other words, just like the first one, theirs is the kingdom. 
He goes, those who are persecuted for righteousness, theirs is the kingdom. That's exactly what it means to live in the kingdom. But then he goes on and just, he just expands it. He goes, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all evil against you falsely for my name's sake. You ever been lied about? You ever been talked badly about? You ever been talked badly about for Jesus? Doesn't feel good to get talked badly about. Jesus goes, you're blessed when they talk badly about you, when they lie about you for my name's sake. And see, beloved, these values are what Jesus bases the whole Sermon on the Mount on. And then the whole Sermon on the Mount, it it actually sets the table for all the rest of Jesus' teaching. This is what the kingdom is. This is what the values of the kingdom are. If we're going to live in the kingdom, we have to live by these values. Listen, there isn't another value system. There isn't some sort of just little dab value system. We just dab a little bit of Jesus on and we just do the Western thing and, and that's just normal. No, it's not just normal. The only one is the one that comes from the Bible. And so I don't know about you, but for me, I don't care how much it flips my head upside down. I want what's real. I want the real thing more than I want what's okay with other people. Do you know what I'm saying? And so I want the value system that Jesus espoused and not some sort of Western version. I want the real deal. And I pray that's what we want in our spiritual family. Amen. All right, let's stand.